listeners, welcome back to Husman FC, part of LIP Productions. I'm Nicola Volpi. It's great to have you here. Uh, if you're here for the first time, welcome to Husman FC. This is a podcast for football nerds by football nerds. And this week, I had the pleasure of interviewing Kit Holden about Union Berlin and more specifically about his book, which has been a hit over the past year, called Scheiße, We're Going Up, The Unexpected Rise of Berlin's Rebel Football Club. It was great to talk to Kit, quite refreshing in terms of the the story of Union Berlin charting their rise, something very different from what we normally hear about in, in modern day football. So that was awesome. I really appreciated his time. Um, I would encourage all of you, if you like the conversation, uh, to check out his book, Shai Said We're Going Up. It makes for a great read. I read it last spring after my younger brother actually recommended it to me and uh, lent me his copy, which uh, I have not returned yet. Um, but yeah, listeners, if this is your first time joining us on Husman FC, make sure to subscribe. Give us a rating, a rating and review if your podcast app permits that. That really helps to grow the podcast. And if you like what you hear, our flagship podcast, Lost in Postulation, which I host with Neil Fitzpatrick about pop culture and the mundanity of daily life, is also available on any podcast app of your choice. Give that a try. Let us know what you think. You can reach us on all the socials at Lost in Postulation or email us, lostinpostulation at gmail.com. Uh, we love to hear from you guys. Again, really helps to grow the podcast. So without further ado, uh, I'll leave it to my interview with Kit Holden. I hope you enjoy it. Take care. We often like to talk about cult teams and cult clubs here at Hussman FC. We exalt clubs that do something slightly different either on the pitch or off the pitch. How many of those are truly cult clubs, though? What if I told you there was a club that trumped any notion you might have of cult status? What if I told you there was a club whose own fans rebuilt their stadium? A club whose corner flags have been designed by one of their own, whose owner is a fan? A club with deep roots in an old geopolitical divide that has now galvanized global audiences? By now, you'll certainly have been made aware of Union Berlin's exploits over recent years. Perhaps you've seen them perform in the Bundesliga, or maybe you'll have noticed they played Champions League in the Santiago Bernabeu this season. But what is their story? What is Union? And what does the future hold for Berlin's Rebel Football Club? Joining me today is Kit Holden, the author of Scheiße, We're Going Up, The Unexpected Rise of Berlin's Rebel Football Club. Kit is a journalist specialized in the Bundesliga and Union Berlin for the Tagesspiegel and having previously collaborated with The Athletic, amongst other publications. Kit Holden, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. It's awesome. We're, uh, our listeners are very excited to, uh, we teased it a little bit, to, to hear about Union. Uh, first though, you know, before we dive into it, how did you first get interested into Union and how did your fandom develop? Yeah, so I, I uh, moved to Berlin, I guess, ten years ago now, and uh, did the usual thing, I guess, which was which was look around to see to see where I'd, where I'd watch football and and Union at the time, I guess, for me and for a lot of people um, with a similar background to me, looked a bit more interesting than than Hertha because Hertha played in the you know big Olympia Stadion. You saw them every week in the Bundesliga. They were a kind of mid-table team. Union were, you know, a second division team. The stadium was more exciting. So I went down there and, and yeah, like a lot of people, was was uh, very enchanted by it all. And then 
yeah, I, I uh, sort of kept following them over the years, and and in the last few years, started started writing about them for the Tagesspiegel. So it's sort of just a, a natural thing that, that um, yeah, being in Berlin, they they became the team I followed. Awesome. And at what point, you know, during that journey, did you start to realize there was the potential for an English language book about Union Berlin? Yeah, I, mean, I, I guess I'd kind of thought for a while in the second division that you know they had, they had this story and and. It was it's a it's a any any time you tell it to somebody they'd, they'd find it interesting and and maybe somebody should write it down in English because there are plenty of books about Onion in German. Right. And then when they got promoted, I thought, oh well, I, you know, somebody best do it now because they'll only be up there for one year and you know then they'll be relegated and there's there's a small window. Um, so so I kind of started articulating it then and then as you know it you know uh, they stayed up they got into the conference league they got into the Europa League they got into the Champions League so um, yeah I've been I've been kind of quite jammy in that respect that, that it actually took me a bit longer to write the book but that turned out to be a good thing um, because yeah it, it, it timed at least until this season um, with mm. this incredible run of, of success and 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 growth so yeah it's been an interesting interesting journey the last few years and uh, yeah We'll see. We'll see. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, at the moment, fifth season up in the Bundesliga, like you said, I think nobody would have expected it at the time. That's also given the the narrative around Union for people outside of Germany, football lovers in general, you know, space to grow. What do you think it is that makes, you know, neutrals all around gravitate towards this club and, and this story? Because, you know, I think any any neutral on a the past few Tuesdays and Wednesdays in Champions League, you know, has actually been tuning into a lot of Union matches rather than uh, a, lo- a lot of the other ones. Yeah, I mean, I think as you said at the beginning, I think you know people do like the kind of idea of a cult club. It's it's one of those terms that Union are quite quite careful about. I mean, interestingly, yeah. in Germany, they're they're sort of they're quite a divisive club for the neutrals. There are a lot of people who who are very sympathetic towards them, but there are also a lot of people who. We find them a bit annoying, I think, and, and and don't really like the kind of the hype around them. Right. Um, there's a lot of misconceptions as well. I mean, it's part of the thing I write about in the book is that you know for a long time they were kind of talked about as the the Zank Pauli of the East, and there was this perception that they were they were like Pauli, a very very um, uniformly left wing club. That's not necessarily true. Um, there are you know misconceptions about about their relationship to to things like commercialism in football. But I think the the thing that really makes Union special, and I think the the stories that really grab people, is the fact that this is a club which has a community around it, which which does things which most football communities don't. And you know, you mentioned the the building of the stadium. There's the the Christmas singing that was founded in 2004. The the when Union were were in footballing terms in the doldrums, and the the fans broke into the stadium to to sing carols mm-hmm. together and, and and drink blue vine in the dark. Um, there's the various times that they've all come together, the the community to to bail the club out from from financial trouble, including with with you know wild schemes like like donating their own blood to to raise money, um, and all these things are you know they're, they're things which yeah you get that level of solidarity and that level of community at some clubs, but you don't tend to get them in to such a degree with so many kind of crazy examples as you do it on your own, and I think that also shows. Then and you feel that very much in in the stadium when you're at the Alte Fürstegai. You know, it's a small stadium; it's three quarters standing. You're packed in like sardines, and there is this sense of okay, no, there's there's no there's no moaning here. There's no 
posh seats and cheap seats. There's mm. no kind of, oh, you know, I, I only come for some games. It's everybody's here all the time, backing on your own first minute to 90th minute. And that's that's intoxicating. And that's something which which is quite unique in modern football, I think, particularly from from a from a perspective, say, from if you're coming from English football or, or Spanish football or something where where perhaps the atmospheres and the, the general kind of relationship between between clubs and fans is a bit more strained. Um, but even within German football, where, you know, fan fan culture is, is slightly healthier, uh, this Union is something special. And I think that 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 does appeal to people. And it's it's a, it's an underdog story. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. the, the bottom line is, you know, it's not that they haven't had any money or, or, or no investment at all, but this is not a kind of, it's not even a Brighton or a Union saint Gilles no. or somebody like that. It's, or, you know, it's it's not a kind of modern construct with with some very, very clever idea and a, and a, and a sharp injection of cash. This is a old-fashioned, organically grown club, um, which has come from the, the fourth division into the Champions League completely against the odds. And I think that, that you know, that's always going to be uh, a nice thing for a neutral football fan. And do you think, because a lot of the discourse around, you know, when we have potential breakaways like the Super League, when we talk about Premier League clubs, we're almost never talking about the clubs anymore, um, especially in the media. We're talking about products on the pitch, right? We're talking about organizations with their valuations as if they're businesses. Do you think Union, part of the allure is that they're showing, hey, football can be different still? It can be done in a more sustainable fashion, and it can actually maintain a relationship with the fans. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think you know, again, as I say, the the, the kind of union skeptics would argue that the whole shtick is you know about being a rebel club or a cult club or whatever is is a marketing thing to a certain extent. And I think you know, to some level, that's that's true. I mean, every club markets itself. Every club tries to find its niche. Its niche, but. What what I I do think is is genuine on Union is this idea that that first and foremost what matters is uh, the football and the people who come to watch the football in the stadium, and everything else is is only done in order to support that in order to to kind of feed back into that that core purpose of the football club, um, and I think you know for all the all the criticisms you might be able to level at the club that's that's something which which is very much true and most people on Union feel and I think that that kind of creates a, as I say this atmosphere of of trust and of, of community um even when when Union are playing in the Champions League or the or the you know the top of the Bundesliga um that yeah you're still going to watch football first and foremost there are no adverts in the you know in the middle of the half uh, or or substitutes sponsored by by whatever company or right. you know uh, corner kicks can't sponsored by you know whoever or whatever it's you turn up and you, you watch a football match and and you know there's a bit of advertising around the edge but but basically you're watching a football match not a big entertainment spectacle and and you know that's that's fun and it does feel like like people talk about football being you know I mean I'm, I was born in the early 90s I, I grew up in in highly commercialized English football but it's but it's mm-hmm. you know whether or not that kind of old uh, romanticized nostalgic glory years of, of good honest football existed or not um Ognon have challenged have channeled uh, something of that spirit and something of, of that thing which people miss from from high level football generally I think now And putting the club in the historical context, which you you do a great job of uh, in the book, for listeners that don't know, Union is from the former East Germany, from the former East East Berlin. How much of this identity and this sense of community, sense of belonging is very much rooted uh, within that uh, historical background? 
Yeah, it is very much so. I mean, I think, you know, the the thing to understand is, is, is that not just by virtue of, of, of having been a communist state for 40 years, but also by virtue of, of what happened in the 30 years since that, East Germany has had a, a slightly different experience to, to West Germany. Um, historical experience, people's biographies are different. The, you know, their relationship to their communities and, and the jobs they've had and, and all the rest of it is, is different because there has been so much more upheaval in the East. Um, and I think on your own, you know, in, in, in East Germany, they, they were, uh, in, in the communist era, they were, they were tended to be seen as the kind of the, um, the rebel club, if you like, in, in, uh, in Berlin terms, in the, the, their big rivals, BFC Dynamo, were, were attached to the Stasi, um, which is the secret police in East Germany, and Union were with the civilian club. Mm. Um, it, you shouldn't overstate that because it's, it's not like Union were a hive of resistance, but they were, they were the, you know, the place where if you, if you didn't want to support the Stasi, then you go and support Union. So, so you know, that's kind of it created a myth around them of, of, of being a rebel club. Um, but actually, since the war came down, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's almost a kind of a, a different idea of a rebel club has emerged of, of Union kind of defying uh, the hardships that, that a lot of those communities in, in East Berlin and East Germany have, have faced. Um, and I think all the way through that, the running thread is this idea that, that um, yeah, the people here hold together and, and uh, this community holds together. And, you know, I think one telling, telling thing I had when I was researching the book was, you know, I, I asked the, the club historian at some point, you know, what, what did Union mean in, in the 90s or, you know, after the war came down? Because there was a time when a lot of East German clubs were changing their names, where they were, you know, a lot of fans were, were abandoning East German clubs. It was a, you know, completely wild time in, in East German football. Um, and he said, Union was what remained, you know, a time when when everything was being thrown up in the air, people were losing their jobs, families were breaking up, people were moving to the other side of the country or suddenly able to move across the world, which they hadn't been able to do for those who were who were still there. Union was the, the constant. And uh, I think that's a, uh, you know, that's something which does, does feed into and, and does explain to a certain degree especially a lot of the early stuff that happened in terms of building the stadium or, or donating the blood or stuff like that. It was, it was that those people and, and that community, which kind of built that basis and, and did that stuff. And I, I don't think you can really understand that without understanding their background and, and the experience of East Germany. Absolutely. And uh, talking about that, you, you do some fantastic interviews in the book with, uh, with actual fans and, and members of, of the club of Union, right? And one of the most striking, and you've already mentioned it a couple of times uh, in, in passing during the interview, is when the fans band together and volunteer to rebuild the Alte Försterei, the stadium. Uh, tell our listeners a bit more about that. Yes, I mean, I mean it, was, uh, it was 2008, um, Union had the first try, I mean, now you go to the first try and it, and it seems like a, you know, an old-fashioned stadium, but I mean, mm. back then it didn't have a roof, it didn't have a main stand, really. You know, the main stand was a little kind of 10-row, sort of low-down, you know, old thing from the from the middle of the 20th century. It was, it was a, an old, crumbling stadium, which, which shouldn't really have been in use anymore. Um, they needed if they wanted to to stay there, which they desperately did, because the the, the location in Copenhagen is a massive part of Union's identity, and and you know to move away would have would have uh, a lot of people you know said when there was recession that chapter to move away would effectively have just killed the club, stone mm. dead. You know you, you know Union exists 
because of this place, they played football in, in this place for a hundred years. And, and that is, you know, the, the, the sort of foundation stone of their identity. So they needed to save it. Um, in order to save it, they had to renovate it themselves. Um, they got a little bit of help from the, from the Berlin city government, but, but basically they had to, they had to sort it out themselves. Um, but the club was broke. It was in the third division and, uh, it didn't have the money to, to do that or the, or even the size to do that. You know, we're talking about a club at that point, which had maybe. 20 employees at most or, or something like that. So, um, yeah, they, they looked inwards and they put out a call at the, in the summer of July, 2008 and said, Oh, look, you know, if anybody, anybody has, has abilities in, you know, construction and, and knows how to build things, then, you know, maybe come and come and volunteer and do some, do some shifts on our, on our building site until we can really get this project up and running. And yeah, instead of four or five builders saying, yeah, I'll come and do a day. They had, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of Union fans, some of whom were, were professional builders and, and knew what they were doing, others of whom were, you know, complete newbies and uh -huh. academics and students and all the rest of it, um, who came over, over the course of a year, I think it was 2,333 volunteers in the end, who over the course of the year came and, and did shifts on the, on the building site in, you know, minus 10 temperatures up to, up to plus 30. Um, and yeah, obviously that story captured the imagination and, and they did it. I mean, you know, the, now in its current form, the Alta First Rai, everything except the, the, the main uh, stand, which was built a few years later, which is kind of with the VIP boxes and stuff, but mm. the other three stands are all built um, exclusively by the fans that stand on them. And, and yeah, and that's a, that's a, a really special thing. And, and it, and it, uh, to, to kind of add to the romance of it, the, the, as they were, obviously they couldn't play in the stadium while they were rebuilding it. So in, in that year, um, they had to play in the Jansport Park, which is the, the old stadium of, of BFC, the Stasi club who are their big rivals. So that was, you know, everyone had to hold their nose and, and right. go into that stadium for a year. And then bizarrely, they, they managed to win the, the third division in, in that year as well. So they got promoted and, and in that summer, obviously coming, coming up to the second division and, and returning to your stadium. Um, you know, but. Jake Sweetman, who, who uh, I chat to in the book as well, saying that he remembers on that day just walking in and just seeing everybody crying because <laughs> it, it was so emotional. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's it's it is a unique thing in 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 modern football. I think that story. I don't think uh, you know it, it's one of those things that sometimes you you say so. Oh, fans built their own stadium, and you think, oh well, yeah, okay, that that sounds like a good story. But if you scratch the surface, it must be you know, not quite as good. But right, the bottom line is that's what they did. You know, they they you know they. They did something which was which was entirely unpredictable and and, and entirely unique and and uh, yeah, uh, incredibly incredibly special. And I mean, beautiful story. And you mentioned quite a few times uh, for the listeners that don't know, three fourths of this stadium is standing room only, essentially, right? Um, there's there's a part of that which has led to you know regulations not allowing them for example to play their their UEFA matches there and having to go over across town to to the Olympia Stadium which obviously very different much bigger but very different type of atmosphere um are what is the plan with the Altafest High going forward because it's such a big component of their DNA that they still have this old school standing but on the other hand maybe it's not the best thing from a commercial perspective for the club to continue growing? Yeah, so I mean, they, they, they've had plans since 2017 to, to expand the stadium. Um, they've been uh, slow to get off the ground, shall we say, uh, for various mm -hmm. reasons. But um, the latest incarnation of them, which was uh, released in, well, just a couple of months ago at the AGM, um, 
according to that plan, they, they're going to start building in 2025. So uh, they'll move into the Olympia Stadion in West Berlin, where they're playing the Champions League for that season. Um, and the idea is, I mean, it's bittersweet because on, on one level, when you now have 60,000 members, it's a 20,000 capacity stadium. Everybody knows that, that they need to expand. It's, it's, mm-hmm. it's non-negotiable. Um, on another level, expanding to, to the extent that they're going to do it, which is going to go up to, to almost 40,000 capacity, so almost doubling the stadium, means that, that certain things are going to be done which take away a little bit of the magic of that stadium. So I mean, one of the, the, the best things about that stadium is not the stadium itself, but the walk to it through the, through the forest of Copenhagen. Um, and it literally is just a, a muddy path and has been since, you know, well, forever really. Um, and that muddy path is now going to be turned into a road because you need another road to, to get past, right. to, you know, to, to make the traffic situation work. So that's going to happen. That's going to be sad. The, the terraces, which were built by their own fans, are going to have to be rebuilt from the ground up, So uh, which wasn't the original plan, but they've, they've realized that they're going to have to do that. So that's a bit sad as well that, you know, it will no longer be fans standing on, on terraces that they've literally built once the once the renovation takes place. But on the other hand, it, it is, you know, according to the plans that they've, they've got at the moment, it is still going to be very much an Alta First Array in the, in the sense that most on Yorna, um, you know, would would want and imagine it in the sense that it's still going to be, basically they're going to build another level over uh, each of the four sides. And apart from one of those uh, upper levels, all of that is going to be standing. So there's, you know, they're going to massively expand the, the capacity of the stadium, but most of the expansion is going to be an expansion of the, the standing capacity. Um, so it's still going to be a very, very unique, I mean, only really St. Pauli who have a, a standing terrace along their touchline. They're the only other club who has anywhere near the same same amount of, of standing capacity as Onion are going to have. Um, it's still going to have hopefully that that the atmosphere that comes with that that intensity and that that sense of community and that sense of being all together, um, and yeah, it's 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 uh, it will still be a unique stadium. Um, as I say, it's bittersweet, and I think it's going to be interesting to see what it, what that does to the the spirit around the club and and the feeling of the relationship between the club and the fans, um, because when you are going to start looking a little bit more like a normal you know medium sized Bundesliga club than than they have done until now. Um, but as you say, I mean, it's it, on one level, it's non-negotiable, and and that's you know, if you're Mainz or Augsburg or, or whoever Heidenheim, then you know there's a, a natural limit to your growth, and you can you can maybe yeah. get away with keeping a twenty thousand stadium. If you're on your own, you're in Berlin, you know, if you're successful, people are going to come and watch you, and and on some level, that's you know, that's that's also what happens. I don't think there's many people on your own who who really want to. I mean, the title of my book is Scheiße, we're going up. That was a joke that people told around the uh, the time when Jorn got promoted that, you know, we don't want to go up because we don't want all this to change. You know, we like it as it is and it's, it's more fun in the second division. But I think particularly now after these these sort of four or five years of success, I think people, most people would say, well, look, you know, the world changes and, and we move on. And it's it's going to be sad to to, to lose Jorn as it is now. But I think people are confident that they can they can still maintain it as something special within modern football. Hmm. And those mixed feelings you mentioned and, you know, kind of the double-edged sword that is good performance on the pitch leads, of course, to uh, a lot of interest in the club from outside, as we've mentioned, but also, you know, a lot of fans that want to travel to the Altafishai from whatever it be, England, Belgium, Netherlands, to to watch a match uh, maybe multiple times throughout a season uh, that, that might come, might not, for example, know all the songs or, you know, these very precise rules of etiquette, which which you mentioned in the book, how do, you know, 
the old school diehard fans, uh, let's call them that for lack of a better term, at Union feel about uh, this international publicity the, the club is getting? And do they fear that the, the culture around the club is, is changing and not just, you know, the stadium and the competitions they're playing? Yeah, and I think it's, it's interesting. I mean, when I f- first started going, it was almost still, you know, if you said to somebody you're English, what are you doing here? Why are you here? Um, and now that's very different. I mean, you know, as you say, there's a lot of people coming from from elsewhere, not just uh, internationally, but also elsewhere in Germany who would never have never have thought about going to Copenhagen before. Um, and yeah, there's a certain amount of grumbling, as always, in those situations of, of you know the older guys being, oh, well, we've been there longer than you, and you know, particularly with the t- competition for tickets being what it is, you know, there's a certain kind of uh, level of of caginess towards towards the new guys. But I think in in general. Uh, I think Onyona are still a lot of Onyona and the old Onyona are still quite flattered, still quite baffled by by the idea that they're this popular and and, and people are this excited by Onyona and and Sebastian Fiebrich is a blogger who I interview in the book. He said a nice thing, uh, which was that that Onyona almost by definition are, uh, are evangelists. You know, mm. they think they have this amazing way of doing modern football and they want to tell everybody about it. So there is this kind of thing of if you come, that they'll show you how it's done and they'll say, look, you know, this is, look how amazing this is. You know, you must be completely and utterly, uh, you know, intoxicated by it like we are. Um, and so there's there's that as well. And I think for me, I mean, I, you know, because of my background, it's it's always been kind of something I'm interested in, something I I think is very important is that balance and I think it's very important that, that the old Onyona are open and, and Onyona does remain open to, to new members because I think that's that's always been the spirit of the club and should be the spirit of the club um, but you know integration is a two-way street and I think it's also up to the new Onyonas to, to when they do arrive to, to you know take a breath and take a look around and, and you know work out and, and take time to see why this is special and, and you know what makes it special and, and I think the easiest Kind of way into that is uh is the stadium atmosphere you know the the reason uh, bottom line the reason why this club is special is because the stadium and the stadium experience is is almost entirely unique in in modern football um and as christian albert the, the club spokesman said on the in the book as well you know if 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 so you have something special and then you have a lot of people who turn up not to take part in it but just to watch it then at some point it doesn't it's not special anymore and it just right. becomes, uh, and that's that's the key and, and those those rules of etiquette which which you mentioned um essentially all they are is saying you know get in get throw yourself 100 percent into the spirit of supporting the team which exists here you know don't leave before the final whistle people don't do that on your own uh don't boo your own team don't moan about your own players people don't do that about when you support your team unconditionally and as long as you're doing that even if you don't speak german even if you don't know the words to the songs uh people will like you and i can't count on Count, count the amount of, amount of people I've, I've taken British people to Union who don't speak a word of German, who have just stood there and bellowed their lungs out, making random noises uh, according to what they're hearing from the yeah. crowd. And people appreciate that. And people go, yeah, okay, fine, cool. You know, come and come and support Union in, in whatever, whatever language. It doesn't matter. But as long as you're you're getting behind them, and I think that's that's always been the the feeling that I get at Union. And I think, as I say, I think then then it's a two way process, and then it works very well. That that idea that you know. The old guys have something to 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 impart to to be evangelist about uh, an idea of football, um, and maybe the new guys also have something to learn and and uh, something therefore to enjoy because you know it is special. And and I think in these conversations, 
we dive in a lot often when we talk about Union into its cult status, into the club, into the fans, as you did into the book, showing that it's very much, you know, more than 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 a football club. But at the end of the day, those on-pitch performances, if we look at these last five years, we go promotion from the Zweite Bundesliga to the Bundesliga, safety, qualification for Conference League, then for Europa League, now for Champions League. They can, you know, donate as much blood as they want to, to finance their team, build as many stands as they want. But what have been the keys to success of that on-the-pitch performance? Yeah, I mean, it's in some ways, you know, you say oh, they can build the stands and, and donate as much blood as they want, but that, that is the baseline of the success. I mean, the you know, mm. those things happened around the time when when Onion was, uh, well, essentially the... the um, the hierarchy at Onion changed, and, and and the current administration, as it were, took over um, in the mid two thousands. And what they've done is is financially stabilized the club, which was which was always in a mess before that, and uh, built from the bottom up and slowly but steadily. And that building has has worked, and part of that building has been stuff like the like you know utilizing the community to to bail them out or uh, you know build the stadium or whatever. Um, but as, as they've gone along, obviously, you know, grown more and more stable, they've able to, I mean, the president, Doug Singler, likes to talk about plateaus. That's his, mm. his latest thing and, you know, reaching new plateaus. Um, and yeah, they've, they've done that consistently over the last 10 to 15 years. Um, that said, I mean, the last five years have been uh, far faster growth and far more success than, than anybody expected. And I think that was largely down to the success of this, this, um, duo in the in, in terms of the sporting leadership you had the, the coach was fisher and, and mm-hmm. the sporting director oliver runat both of whom for that five-year period worked unbelievably well together were able to 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 get so much more out of of ostensibly quite average bundesliga players than than you might have expected um and then you know they, they got a bit of momentum and 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 that meant that, that things happened a lot faster than, than anybody could ever have expected. But the base of that was always the, the stability of the club. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a, it's a funny one now because this season is going so badly, but, <laughs> but uh, I think, um, yeah, the, the bottom line is, I mean, if you talk to players in that, in the last five years and you ask them, you know, why, why is this happening? Why, why is this club able to kind of uh, overachieve so much they often talked about the atmosphere around the club and the, the kind of working atmosphere and the idea that you're you're kind of protected if you're an Union player. You know, Union mm-hmm. is it's a club which is out in the in the forests of East Berlin. As long as Hertha were there, they weren't they weren't the big club that that everybody was looking at in Berlin. Uh, it's a small organisation. It's quite a family feel, a community feel. You know, people often talk about the siege mentality. They you know they often talk about these words like like North Korea occasionally to describe the you know the way that nothing ever gets out into the open it's you know, it's, it's it's really you know kind of the, it's a very very tight-knit community within the organization and i think as a player that that massively helps because it it, it takes away all this kind of outside noise that you get a, a lot of other clubs um and that that comes from the basis of, of what went before and and combine that with some really really high quality um, professional work from from Fisher and Runa, the the coach and the sporting director. Um, you had you had a, for a few years there a perfect formula for a club to to massively massively ever achieve. And moving towards this season, Kit, this is a, this is a part that that I wanted to discuss with you before we get on to you know the current situation and result. Just 
explain to to the listeners the magnitude of Union traveling to Madrid to the seat of the pinnacle of European footballing power, Florentino Perez's house, and playing a Champions League match there. It must have felt surreal for the fans who were there in the in the nineties. Yeah, I mean, it felt surreal for the fans who were there in 2018. But but yeah, I mean, it, 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 yeah. I mean, when, when they, when they went to Finland for the, for the first conference league qualifier and, and yeah, that was, that was a thing that everyone's saying, we can't miss this. You know, this is the the biggest thing that uh, Real Madrid is, is not, not, who on your own play and it still it still looks weird. I mean there's there right. a thing where they went out where I where I kept clicking the the Spider Bundesliga button on my on my uh, results app because it, it was so unintuitive to me that Union would be in the top flight. Um and still to see those badges together it, it's it's baffling. You know, this is yeah. I mean it was it was huge. It's it's you can't really put that into words because it's 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 yeah. There's it's too big. They're 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 too clubs at, at such opposite ends of the football spectrum with with such different stories and and to go there and, and almost even get a nil nil if it weren't for Jude Bellingham then uh, right yeah, right at the end yeah I mean uh, really amazing stories and we're here today recording today Kit 4th of December Union is a bottom of the Bundesliga they've a couple weeks ago parted ways with Urs Fischer um the way it was delivered here, I don't. Then you can go more into it. Was kind of a mutual consent decision. But sum up what is going on this season at Union? Because even to me, a little bit, you know, it it breaks my heart as a neutral uh, that this was kind of the could be a coronation season in a way, and and to see it going the way it's going. Yeah, it's it's a funny one because it's quite difficult to really put your finger on exactly what's gone wrong. I think there's been a a lot of things that have come together to a large extent. Um, Essentially, you know, Union uh, won the first two games of the season. Everything seemed to be fine, and then mm-hmm. they lost one, and they kept on losing. And and we're now in a run of sixteen games without a win. Of those, uh, only three have been drawn. Um, there was a run of, I think it was eleven defeats in a row in the end in across all competitions. Um, and as I say, I mean, to a certain extent, there was some bad luck. I mean, a lot of Union tend to tend to change their squad quite a lot in, in each summer under Runa. Uh, tend to be sort of 10 players in, 10 players out. And, and usually the way they manage that is that there's usually a core of one or two leadership, you know, leading players who, who manage that transition and are able to kind of maintain this tactical stability and, and things like that. Um, mm. it, as it happens, those two players, um, Knocker and Kadira, as, as the players who would have taken that role on this year, both got injured and suspended quite early in the season, so missed a few of the early games. Then you had the tough fixture list. I mean, in that run of defeats, there was Real Madrid, there was Borussia Dortmund, there was RB Leipzig, there was Napoli. You know, these these weren't easy games. Um, and yeah, you had a few injuries. You had a few players because of the injuries having to come back before they were they were fully fit. Players not being integrated into the squad perhaps as well as they might have been in in previous years. You could maybe point to 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 the imbalance of the squad. I mean, there's a, a few transfers which which haven't really worked out. Um, 
Oliver Runa, the sporting director, said literally the day after they got into the Champions League that it would be the hardest transfer summer he'd ever he'd ever had because in the Champions League everything changes. And previously, Union had always tried and always pretty much managed to get their squad done by mid-July. And, and he was saying in the Champions League that's not going to be possible. We're just going to be so much more, you know, dependent on that on that transfer deadline day um, because we don't know who's going to leave. And, and you know. Um, so it, it has been trickier, and there's been a, there's been all these things, and the upshot of that has been effectively the, the things which Fisher always did well, which was drilling his teams, making sure that defensively they were very strong, that tactically they were very, 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 very well disciplined. Um, hasn't worked. It, it, you know, the, he couldn't quite get that what he calls the, what he used to call the, the uh, automatism and the kind of the, the automatic, uh, um, you know, uh, things. He, he, he couldn't couldn't quite internalize them in the same way with this squad that uh, as he has done with previous squads but it's it's been odd because in in truth they haven't played that badly you know there've been mm. maybe one or two games where where you thought this is this is terrible but but in a lot of those games you know they've had a half or a half hour or an hour where they've played really really well and they've looked like the old onion and yet at the end you know they've still lost they've lost narrowly or they've melted down over 20 minutes or or whatever um, and as I say, the fixture list has been hard. And, and at a certain point, I think it just got into their heads. You know, if you're a professional footballer and you lose ten games in a row, then it's in your head. It's you know, the problem is then no longer whether or not the the defence is working properly. The problem is is whether or not your head is working properly. And and that is yeah. Uh, eventually, that became a situation which which I guess Fisher saw as intractable. I mean, you know, there's. Uh, some people are, you know, there's different interpretations of, of, of his departure. But to be honest, I, I do think that I believe the, the line the club put out, which is that, that they were going to back him for as long as as long as he wanted backing. And, and if he thought that he was, wasn't reaching the team and, and a change would do the club good, he would say that. And he did say that. Um, that seems to be in line to me with what I know of Oz Fisher. You know, he was never someone who got carried away with the, the, the emotions and the, the excitement of it all. He was always very much a, a pragmatic person pragmatic coach, um, quite down to earth, quite quite quiet. And so I think he's he's judged that situation. He's just said, I'm not reaching the team anymore and, and it's better to try someone new. And and the new guy, Bielitsa, has has talked a lot in the in his first week about about it being psychological and I think that's that's where we're on right now. I mean in in principle the squad isn't you know, it's still a good squad in principle. Mm-hmm. Um as I say, tactically they're not they're not completely lost, but uh Psychologically, they just they just need a win. <laughs> that's that's, yeah. that's the bottom line. And and uh, at the moment, you know, we saw against Braga in midweek. You know, uh, had one man extra for seventy minutes. We're one 0 up and made one mistake. The equaliser. Yeah. You know, it looked like they were going to win that game three 0 and then made one mistake, conceded an equaliser, and suddenly they froze and they just they they looked like they were playing with with one man fewer. And, and you know, I think that's that's they just got to break that cycle and. I still think they'll, they'll probably stay up, but yeah, mm-hmm. it's it's a it's a a sad end to to what's been a, a pretty wild ride. But again, right. I mean, Onyona don't care about that, you know. In uh, bottom line, I mean, obviously everyone wants to win, but but Onyona already way beyond anything any any of their fans expected from them. So right. you know, the conversations I've been having with Onyona fans has been, yeah, so what? Yeah, you know, if we go down, we go down. But it's been you know, uh, it's been amazing, and, and we're Onyona, whatever. 
Yeah, that that was what I was going to ask next, you know, was the general mood, the general vibe there. It still seems relatively positive, optimistic. We are not even halfway through the season, right? So I'd love to check in with you as we uh, as we reach crunch time later this season to uh, to discuss with the listeners. But um, another thing, you know, and probably something they're very proud of at Union is Bielitsa, now the new manager, appointed as his, um, as his second in command, as his assistant, a female uh, coach, actually. Yeah, so I mean, he didn't actually appoint her. So she was um, she was the assistant of Michael Water, who was the the under nineteen mm. coach, um, and uh, who came in as interim coach. Right. Um, and then when Bielitsa came in, he um, uh, he kept her on. Basically, she's she's still assistant. Um, so yeah, I mean that's I mean you know yeah, there's a ray of sunshine in the in the in the grim last few weeks. Has been yeah, it's, I think it's the first time in the Bundesliga that's been a, a assistant a female assistant coach. First time in the Champions League. Um, and yeah, I mean, as, as Doug Singler said, you know, it's, it's not a decision for a woman; it's a decision for, for a highly qualified right. coach who is the best person to do the job. And uh, he was saying, you know, if I if I uh, appointed her because she was a woman, then it would have, you know, made a nonsense of the entire decision. Um, and and I think that's right. And uh, yeah, if you talk to anyone and you read whatever anyone's saying, who who knows her and knows her work, you know, the, everyone can't speak highly enough of her. So um, yeah, it's a it's a nice thing to. To, to have that in a time like this. Yeah. Uh, and you mentioned, I just want to touch upon briefly, uh, some of the transfers this summer. You know, so you mentioned some some injuries in terms of the leadership, but in August, they bring in, and I was quite flabbergasted by it, to be honest, um, Leonardo Bonucci from, from Juventus, who was in fact leaving a club that he was suing uh, in, in Italy for, for not being put into the squad. How has that worked out? Because... To me, from the off, it was like this is not a good fit. What's going on here? That's interesting that you, that you say that. I mean, there's there, there is an argument to say, you know, I mean, we don't know; it's not public what Bonucci is earning, but I think we can assume that it's that it's significantly higher than a lot of people in that squad. There's an argument that says mm-hmm. that kind of, of wage imbalance is not necessarily good for the dressing room. Um, there's an argument to say that that you know. A player like Bonucci is, is, as you say, more likely to get annoyed about not playing, and he hasn't played all the time, um, right. partly because he's, he's not been fit all the time. Um, to be honest, watching them, I haven't really had that feeling. You know, Bonucci doesn't look like somebody who who the rest of the squad are, are really annoyed with, or or somebody who who is kind of you know snootily looking down at the rest of them. I think he seems to be from his body language, and when you watch him in training, when you watch him warming up when you watch him during the game he seems to be really really seriously taking on that role of 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 being a leadership figure and 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 trying to build the team up and trying to impart experience and and you know trying to to create a good atmosphere in the in the dressing room that's the impression i get from him and the impression i get from from the way other players interact with him um there was a story when he wasn't in the starting lineup for the champions league against napoli that that you know his agent apparently you know leaked something during the game saying he was mm-hmm. upset about it he then denied that very, very quickly. I mean, all of that is, is the usual smoke and mirrors. Um, but, but as I say, I don't, I don't, to be honest, get the feeling that, that he's been a problem in that dressing room. Um, the problem really for, with him has been that, that, as I say, Knocker got injured very, very early on, which meant that Bonucci, who 
hadn't really completed a full pre-season because he, because of the situation at Juventus, had to come into that team before he was really match fit, um, had to had to take on that role of, of leading them before he was fully integrated into Fisher's system. And I think that's been his struggle. And you saw that in, in you know, a few games against Hoffenheim, against, against uh, not so much against Real Madrid. He was really good in that game, but, but a, a few other games around that time where, you know, he made a couple of mistakes that, that, that cost on your because he was thrown in a bit too early, and I think uh, I think if, if any if there's been any problem with Bonucci, then that's been it. But uh, yeah, I don't know. I think Onion have always tried him when they signed Max Cruiser three mm. or four years ago. You know, there was the same question: Oh, you know, is this guy going to be too big an ego? Is it? Is it? You know, um, is it going to imbalance the dressing room? And 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 that worked too. And I think I you know I don't think Onion. You know, the the general spirit, yes, is very much okay. The team is the star, and it's about you know uh, sacrificing yourself for the for the good of a, a, a disciplined tactical system. But uh, you know, I, I think they can also deal with big names, and I think generally it seems to be that Bonucci has, has been a good force rather than a, a bad force in that dressing room. So I don't know. We'll see what happens, and we'll see what what comes out. I guess uh, in the uh, in the months and years to come. But but yeah, I don't I don't get the impression he's the problem to be honest. Okay. Well, that's good to hear. I mean, Kit, look, we've gone on a on a tour de force here, covering uh, the 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 history of Union all the way up to uh, to Uzvish's departure and uh, and Leonardo Bonucci. Uh, listeners, I highly encourage all of you to get a copy of Scheisse. We're going up by Kit Holden, uh, one of the best. Um, you know, football books I've read uh, in the last few years, a very different and refreshing type of story um, on the ground, something you could only write by actually, you know, diving deep into the club with the people there uh, and around it. Um, Kit, other than that, where can our listeners find you? Um... I'm actually no longer on X. So I normally say Twitter, but, uh, <laughs> but I, I have left that platform. Um, yeah, I, uh, you can find my work on on Tagesspiegel if you read German. Um, uh, occasionally AFP in English. Um, uh, there's a new uh, app called The Rival, which I'm sure is going to be launched in the next few weeks that I'll be writing for. Um, and yeah, uh, yeah, Google probably is the best answer to that. <laughs> Brilliant. Um, yeah, great. So, Kit Holden, thanks for joining. Uh, it was great to to learn more about Union Berlin, um, and uh, and hope to catch up with you later this season as we uh, as we wrap up on uh, on seeing where Union lands and also coming into the Euros in Germany. Yeah, look forward to it. Cheers. Cheers, mate. Well, listeners, there you have it. That was my conversation with Kit Holden about Union Berlin. I hope you've enjoyed it. Maybe you've learned something uh, about the history of one of the coolest football clubs in Europe. And we hope to bring you more and more content like this in the future. So enjoy, if you can, tell one, two, maybe three friends about the podcast. Um, And uh, we'll see you and your friends on the next one. I'm Nicola Volpi. This was Hussman FC, an LIP production. Until next time.